0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. My name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, I've told some of you before about uh, my friend Jerry that I met when I got to go to the Holy Land. Uh, But I thought this was uh, just a really good story to to start us off today. So uh, this was actually back in 2011. I had a chance to go with my friend Thomas, who is a Catholic priest, to Israel. And I do highly recommend if you do go to the Holy Land, take a priest with you. Uh, You get a lot of extra access to stuff that you wouldn't otherwise have. Uh, So when we went, uh, I mean, neither of us had ever been before, and one of the things about going to the Holy Land is there's religious sites everywhere, as you can imagine, and not all of them are super uh, reliable, like uh, the place... The Church of the Beatitudes, which is, uh, marks where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, is this beautiful church. It's eight-sided uh, because there are eight Beatitudes, and it, oh, it's on this hill that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. It's like super picturesque and amazing, and even the priests who work there are like, yeah, this church was built in like 1,000, so no one knows which of these many mountains you can see is the one where Jesus sat to give the Sermon on the Mount, so we just chose one with a good view and built a church here, Right. Still a cool place, still very special, but like that's what you kind of have to watch out for, right? It's like when you're going to see some of these places, uh, how, how reliable is it that this is the spot? And so uh, my friend Thomas found this book called The Oxford Guide to the Holy Land. It's this big, thick, but I, mine is on Kindle or I would have brought it and showed you. Uh, it's by this uh, archaeologist named Jerome Murphy O'Connor. And I had, I had used some of O'Connor's stuff when I was in high school, or sorry, in, uh, in college, like writing some papers and stuff. He's a really good archaeologist, really good biblical scholar. And so when I saw that he had written this Oxford Guide to the Holy Land, I thought, oh, this is this is awesome. And sure enough, when you flip through this book, you can like look up the site, and then it's got a ranking from one to four stars, one star being like, yeah, probably like there's no telling. They just kind of chose a spot. And four stars being like, this we're as sure as you can be without a time machine that this is really the spot where this happens. So you can just kind of look through and see at each site you visit, you know, how many star ranking is it? And then there's a little bit of history about the site and the archaeology of the site and stuff. So super helpful for us as we're going around to all of these sites. When we were in Jerusalem, we stayed at this place called the Ecole Biblique, which is a French Dominican school of archaeology. It sits right outside of the Old City of Jerusalem, and it's the school where they brought the Dead Sea Scrolls when they found them. And they were like, uh, "Are these something important?" You know, and all the French archaeologists were like, "Sacré bleu!" Yes. I don't know how you say "very important" in French, but that's probably what they said, right? Uh, so this is that school. That, like we got to stay there again because my friend's a priest, right? So he had the insider access. Uh, so we're like we're staying, and and this is this is a, a school that's run by Dominican priests, and so they live uh, very much a monastic lifestyle. So they have uh, they, they do you know morning prayers, and then they all eat a common breakfast together. They have you know me- noontime prayers, they have evening prayers, and they all do all these common meals. And so Thomas and I got used to going to morning prayers and then eating breakfast with all of these priests and uh, we were Americans they could not they could not figure out what I was they kept asking what kind of Protestant I was and I was like, well I'm a Nazarene and they were like what's that you know and I said well you know we're a plucky little denomination that was founded about a hundred years ago and they were like that's cool. We were founded by the Apostle Peter, like basic, basically the same, right? Uh, and uh, so, I mean, they, they actually, uh, there's one, there was, was one guy in particular, this, this crusty old Irish priest named Jerry, who loved teasing us because he was Irish mostly and a little crusty. Uh, and so every morning we would like recount what we did the day before and Jerry would make fun of us uh, for being like weird Americans or whatever. And, you know, we go about our day. And so one morning, as we sat down, it was one of our mornings where we were kind of trying to pack a lot in, so we had our little Oxford guide to the Holy Land out. And Jerry looks over, and he goes, oh, I'm not going to do an Irish accent, because it's worse than my French accent. Um, He goes, oh, you're using my book. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? He goes, yeah, my book, you're using it. How is it? And I I was like, I'm sorry, Jerry is Dr. Jerome Murphy (laughs) O'Connor? Like, What? <laughs> I know that for many of you you're like whatever. I was very much in the middle of a geek out freak out, right? So, uh, I was I was amazed that this again, crusty old Irish guy who'd just been, you know, ribbing us throughout our our stay was Jerome Murphy O'Connor, like a very impressive and influential Bible scholar to me. And so suddenly, like after I kind of got over my freak out, we, we were telling him all the places we were planning on going, and he started just telling us stories about, oh, when he was excavating there or, t- you know, uh, giving us tips about the different places. And we were like, Jerry, Dr. Jerry, uh, w- sir, where do we, you know, where should we go? What are your favorite places? Right, And, and, and it was a completely different experience. Uh, we loved the book. It was super useful, and it made our trip better, for sure. But there was no comparison to using the book to help us know the Holy Land better and then getting to talk to the guy who wrote the book and who lived there and who had had all of this deep personal experience. Um, No comparison. If I had a choice between carting the book around and getting a tour from Jerry, my bud, uh, there's no question I would choose the guy that I got to meet, that I got to build a relationship with. Uh, Now, I tell that story because the questions we're going to be looking at today are about the Bible. And I really do think that a lot of us sort of accidentally end up treating the Bible sort of like we were treating the Oxford Guide to the Holy Land. It's a good book. It's got good stuff in it. It's helpful in our lives. But I'm afraid that sometimes we forget that we have direct access to the author of Scripture, to the one that Scripture points us to. And we don't have to choose between just using the book and just knowing the one who is behind the book. Uh, For us, we can do both. And in fact, I think when we approach Scripture well and approach Scripture correctly, Scripture points us to God and invites us into a deeper relationship with God. And so that's what I want to talk about today. How do we approach Scripture? What do we mean when we talk about Scripture as a book that's inspired Uh, And then how does it point us to knowing God in a fuller way? Because I think when we know God and don't just settle for knowing about God, it really is transformative for us. So with that in mind, I want to invite you to worship with us. Uh, If you're a guest with us, whether you're uh, virtual with us on the stream or whether you're here in the building, uh, you can see that we're going to be receiving communion here in a little bit. And so if you're virtual with us, I hope you can gather some things to receive communion, something to eat and something to drink. If you're in the building with us, hopefully you got one of the little communion cups from Sarah as you came in. Uh, If not, you can go grab some real quick while we're uh, worshiping. But we're going to begin by singing together and by celebrating this God who wants to know us, who as we talked about last week, takes the first step uh, to know us better and invites us to know God. So would you stand with me and sing with me as we begin celebrating together? This summer, we are putting your questions front and center. We spent a few months collecting various questions that we all have had about everything from God and Scripture to living faith out in our everyday lives, and uh, that's what we're working through this summer. And so as we're working through this series, I want to continually make two reminders. Uh, First of all, at Catalyst, we're not afraid of questions. We don't think questions are evidence of a lack of faith or an inability to trust God. We actually see questions as a good and holy pursuit, a way that we take our faith more seriously and a way that we are invited deeper into the life of God. And so we love questions here, and we are all about asking the best questions we possibly can. Uh, The other thing I want to remind us is that for us, questions are not the end of a conversation, the uh, the beginning of a conversation. So so even the sermons that we're doing in response to these questions are not meant to settle things once and for all. They're meant to give us a good start on asking them. And and the hope is that when we leave from worship uh, after hearing these messages and wrestling with the scriptures in the way that we are, we're going to continue to have these conversations in ways that are fruitful and enriching to us. Uh, So with that in mind, I wanna look at two questions that we're going to try to tackle together today. Uh, And they're both uh, about Scripture. So here's the first one. If the Bible was written by man, surely there are some mistakes or things written with ego. Uh, I struggle to believe every single thing in the Bible. I feel people take the Bible so literal, like did someone really turn to salt? Or could these be stories simply to help us learn morals? Okay, it's a good question. Here's the second one. Uh, Can you expand on the fact that we have taken so much of the mystery out of Christianity, possibly westernized it, to the point of being able to explain every aspect of it, instead of embracing the mystery things that are somewhat unexplainable or unknowable, like God, hell, angels, creation, sin, right? How do we embrace mystery and lean into the unexplainable aspects of the faith? Okay, I know that one doesn't seem like it necessarily connects to Scripture, but I promise it does, at least in my brain. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, So, we're going to be talking about the Bible. We got to ask what the Bible is, right? And I I grew up in evangelical churches, and so I grew up with all of these pithy little acronyms and sayings about the Bible. Uh, I sort of have a love hate relationship with them because, on the one hand, they're really easy to remember, on the other hand, I think they actually point us away from what Scripture is in some detrimental ways. For instance, I don't know if you've seen this on a bumper sticker or heard someone say it, but they, they write Bible as an acronym, so like B, period, I, period, B, right, like Bible, and then they say it stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. It's cute. Maybe a little cringy, right? The problem is, uh, I think a lot of us end up treating the Bible like that. We treat it like a, an instruction book that tells us what we need to know so that God can pluck us out of here and take us somewhere else where we'll be happy. And that's not really what the Bible is. Uh, I also grew up with a bunch of people talking about the Bible as the, uh, I always have to say this with a preacher voice, right? The inerrant, infallible word of God. Uh, What's strange, though, is that the Bible never claims to be inerrant, without error, or infallible. We just claim those things for the Bible. And I'm going to be honest with you, uh, I don't think the Bible is inerrant or infallible. Uh, there are lots of places that we can point to that are uh, errors, either like scientific errors, like the fact that uh, the, the way the Hebrews thought the world existed is not what we know from science today, or places where gospel stories contradict each other, things like that. So I don't like claiming things for the Bible, A, that the Bible never claims for itself, B, that it, you can just, from a casual reading of Scripture, see are not true. All of that to say, then, what do we think the Bible is? And I want to start by showing you what our denomination, the Church of the Nazarene, says about the Bible. This is what we say about Scripture in our articles of faith. And there's a lot of jargon in here. I just want to call your attention to what I think is the real juicy part. Okay, so here's what it says. We believe in the plenary inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, by which we understand the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, given by divine inspiration Inerrantly revealing the will of God concerning us in all things necessary to our salvation, so that whatever is not contained therein is not to be enjoined as an article of faith, okay, like I said, a lot of jargon, but you might have clocked that word inerrant in the middle there, which I just did a little rant on. look at what it says though the the old and the New Testament, given by divine inspiration, which inerrantly reveal what not all things but inerrantly reveal the will of God concerning everything that's necessary to our salvation. So, so if you strip away all the jargon, what our statement on scripture says is that the Bible can be trusted to lead us into a saving relationship with God, okay? That, there's, that the Bible does not make any mistakes when it comes to how we can know Jesus and be a part of his kingdom, okay? It's not a great science textbook, Arguably, it's not even necessarily a super good history textbook, at least in the way we read history today. Okay, um, there's some rock and poetry in there, all right. But uh, what what beyond all of that, what is true about Scripture is that we can trust it completely to point us to God and to help us to know God. Okay. So I don't like the word inerrant. I don't love the word infallible. The I word that I do love when we talk about scripture is inspired. And our, our statement of faith, uh, our statement on, on scripture said that it's inspired by God. I want to ask what it means to say that the Bible is inspired, okay? Uh, so if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, now, these are some books at the end of the New Testament that we call the pastoral epistles. They're 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. They're attributed to the, to the apostle Paul, um, but we're, we're pretty sure Paul didn't write them. It actually is likely a, a later disciple of Paul who's writing in his name, uh, which is something that they did. Today, we would call that like plagiarism or something like that, or identity theft maybe. That was a common practice in the ancient world. Uh, it was something that they did all the time. Uh, in this particular text, which is an older pastor who's writing to a younger minister, he's talking to him about how difficult it is to be faithful in the world that they live in, which has so many complete, competing claims on truth, so many different ideas of what counts as the good life, so many different perspectives on what human flourishing looks like, so many different ideas about whose life has value and whose doesn't. And if that sounds familiar, yeah, we haven't changed a lot, right? And so into all of that, what this older pastor wants to say to this younger pastor by way of advice is that you can trust the scriptures to provide a buoy and a harbor in, this, in these tumultuous times, okay? And the thing that's super interesting is that when this was written, we didn't really have a New Testament yet, um, There were, uh, uh, maybe the four Gospels by this point had been collected and were being circulated. Someone had collected a lot of Paul's letters together and were sort of circulating them. But we didn't have the 27 books that we call the New Testament yet. So when this writer is talking about the Scriptures, what he's talking about is what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Um, However, when the church uh, did finally sort of agree on our 27 books of the New Testament, they were able to, you know, sort of said, well, this didn't apply then, but it applies now. So we're kind of scooping all of those 66 books into what we call the scriptures, right? So here's here's what this older pastor says. You have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is, and here's that word, inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Okay, so there's a bunch of stuff that scripture does there, right? It, it teaches us what is right. It reveals to us when there's something wrong in our own spirits and our own lives, and it leads us and teaches us. It prepares us and equips us, and it's all wrapped up in this word, inspired, okay? Now, when it comes to talking about what it means to say that scripture is inspired, there's kind of a spectrum Of beliefs about what this means. Uh, On one end is what a lot of uh, theologians and scholars call verbal inspiration. And what that means is essentially that God dictated, uh, like to a secretary, right, every single word of the scriptures. Okay, so whatever word is in there in the original language or the King James, depending on how you like it, right, uh, that, that that's exactly the word that God wanted in there. Uh, so, so it's essentially 100% a work of God, and the humans are just sort of, uh, you know, recording devices. But it's all, it's all God. No human effort, really, at all. On the far other end of the spectrum is something we might call, like, theological insight. And this is the idea that uh, this is 100% a product of human wisdom, uh, that what we have in the Bible is a collection of books that reflect the particular humans and their particular cultures and times with all of their uh, good things and bad things about them. And, and, and they produced this as people who were wise and maybe particularly attuned to the spiritual world. But there's nothing, um, there's nothing especially divine going on in the Bible. It's, it's 100% a work of humans. Okay, So that's, those are kind of the two far ends of the spectrum. And I, I will tell you, there's not a ton of people that fall all the way at one end or the other. Most people try to kind of find a spot somewhere in between. Maybe they're like a 70-30, right? It's like mostly God, but like a little bit of human culture. Or maybe it's like, you know, 90-10, maybe mostly human culture, but there's a little bit of divine stuff going on. Maybe the Jesus stuff or the red letters or something like that, right? Um, but but people try to place themselves somewhere on the spectrum. I actually think that the word that the author of 2 Timothy uses, God-inspired, uh, the, the actual Greek word he used there literally translates to God-breathed, helps us get out of this spectrum and arguing about where on it we fall. Uh, when you look into Scripture... Uh, you can go all the way back to the creation story in Genesis 2 to look at the idea of something being God-breed. That's how God brings humanity to life. He full, he, uh, God molds the humans out of clay and then breathes into their nostrils the breath of life, right? So there's this idea that humans are this mixture of earthy stuff and heavenly stuff. Uh, and that idea gets magnified in the incarnation of Jesus. When we talk about Jesus... Uh, not as a demigod who's like 50% God and 50% human or something like that, but as someone who is this uh, this mystery, this, this person who is both fully human and fully God, 100% of both. Uh, and then we scratch our heads at that and we say, that's confusing. And we say, exactly, that's right. Jesus is a mystery. He's singular in the history of the cosmos as the one God human, the one who is fully human and fully divine. There is a scholar I love named Peter Enns, and he wrote a book a number of years ago about this issue of, of biblical uh, inspiration, what it means to say the Bible is inspired. And so he has an idea that he calls incarnational inspiration, where he sort of takes that whole spectrum and folds it over on itself. And he says, what if we take this idea that the Bible says the Bible is God-breathed really seriously, And we look at what that idea means throughout the scriptures, and we sort of fold these things together. So instead of saying that the Bible is some percentage God, uh, divinely inspired, and some percentage uh, effort of human culture and effort, we say it's both. It's both fully a divine document and fully a document that is uh, a product of human culture. Uh, This lets us do, I think, something that's really, really good with scripture, which is honor... Both of those ends of the spectrum. We can celebrate the fact that the Bible was written by dozens of different authors in multiple cultures over a span of hundreds of years and then compiled over a period of thousands of years, preserved over a period of thousands of years by handwritten copies, and then selected and carefully assembled together out of a sea of potential other books, right? We all want to talk about all the stuff that got left out. That's a whole different sermon, right? And when we say that the Bible is both fully a divine document and fully a human document, we don't have to be embarrassed about any of this stuff. We don't have to say like, oh, well, yeah, you know, there's some different authors or we actually don't know who wrote a lot of the books or we're not even sure when some of them were written or where or yeah, like it was a weird process of putting all the book books together into the Bible. Yeah, like those are those are things that when you're trying to place inspiration somewhere on a spectrum, you sort of have to end up apologizing for and making excuses for and moving around. But when you understand that, yeah, All of these things can be true, and it's also fully a divine document. What we have in Scripture is this massive library full of all of these different genres. You have poetry and folklore, and yeah, you've got instructions like in the Torah and in Paul's letters. You've got biographies. You've got apocalypse, which is sort of like ancient fantasy literature. You've got all of this different stuff, and it's all produced by people who have had these transformative encounters with the one we call God. If you think back to last week, right, we talked about God as the one not who is reached out to, but the one who reaches out to us. So these people created these texts not because they were sitting on a mountain and had a flash of divine insight, but because the God of the universe made themselves known in such a way that we had to respond. And we responded with a lot of these books that we now call the Bible. And so what we receive when we receive Scripture, what we read when we read Scripture, are these accounts of how peoples and cultures and countries and nations were transformed by the movement and the activity of God in the world. And they're given to us not so we can be good historians or good theology nerds or something like that, but so that we can be part of the story too so that we can be wrapped up in the people of God and invited into the kingdom of God, the work that Jesus is doing in our world. They're they're an invitation to us, saying, come and join us. I want to pause there, because I think this is an important, this is is for me the heart of what's at stake today. Do we treat scripture as a way to know more about God, or do we treat scripture as an invitation to know God? And our spiritual ancestors that wrote these books that we now call the Bible wanted them to be invitations to know God, not simply know about God. And so I hope that that's something that we can be excited about and something that we can celebrate. I want to invite the worship team back up now uh, so that we can meditate on that through this song. I want to return to that second question, the one that didn't seem to obviously connect to how we read Scripture. can we expand on the fact that we have taken so much of the mystery out of Christianity? Um, Those of you who have been around Catalyst may remember our friend Tim Basselin, who used to be on our preaching team before they moved. Uh, One of my favorite messages he ever preached was about mystery and about the limits of our ability to know. And in that message, he talked about the difference between puzzles and mysteries, Because I think in our sort of everyday common usage, we use the two words interchangeably Uh, to the the extent that one of my favorite genres is mystery novels, right? Where there is a, a puzzle that needs to be solved and the protagonist of the novel, usually the detective, is the one who is smart enough to assemble all of the pieces and put them together in a way that makes sense of the mystery, um, but Tim pointed out that that's a puzzle, right? Puzzles are the things that are missing pieces, and there's some kind of big picture you're working towards, and if you're clever enough or smart enough, or I don't know, maybe if the puzzle's easy enough or whatever, uh, you, can, you can take all of the pieces and put them together in the right way, and then you have the whole picture, okay? A mystery, at least the way it's used in uh, religious studies and theology, is really closely connected to the, the word mysticism. And the idea of a mystery in the sense of a divine mystery is that it is fundamentally unknowable, that it is beyond our capacity as human beings to see the whole picture. Uh, What we can do uh, at best is is get a part of that. And this is is language that we use to talk about God, uh, honestly, kind of to talk about God in safe ways, because every time we use language about God, we're trying to reduce God to a puzzle to someone that we can know fully, to someone that we can see the whole picture of and understand completely and, you know, put together in all the right ways. And again, I think uh, a lot of us sort of accidentally treat Scripture as a puzzle guide, right? That, That what it has in it is all of the instructions for how to assemble all of the pieces of our life in the right order to, like, win or fix it or understand completely. But what we see again and again and again in the Scriptures is that God is a mystery, that God is fundamentally unknowable to us, that God is beyond us, which, again, I just want to insist is a good thing, right? It's a feature, not a bug, because you don't want the one that we worship to be someone that, that we can understand and control, right? Like, that, that, that would get us into all sorts of trouble. Uh, it's actually good for us that the one that we worship, that the one that we trust with our lives and with our world is beyond us. Uh, so that what we can say is not, I understand, but I trust. And so this is why uh, this is the drum I beat all the time, that it's so important for us to not treat scripture as a guidebook or a set of instructions or a blueprint or a map, because all of those things imply that we can know in full. Uh, instead, the scripture is this beautiful collection of books of all of these different genres. Uh, again, like I said, with some instructions in it, sure. But none of it is designed to tell us how to uh, how to act in the same way that the ancient peoples act. I, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. Um, my eye twitches a little bit anytime I see someone talking about how their church is just a New Testament church. Because it's not. Like, the first thing i like, oh, you speak Greek at church? And they're like, no. Well, then it's not New Testament church, right? Like, I quit it, right? Because what they're trying to do is say, we figured out the secret, and we do everything the right way, and we are doing it just like Paul's churches did it. We don't know how Paul's churches did it. We have, like, letters, which are basically one half of a phone conversation. And we have some good guesses at what it looked like, but we also don't live in ancient Corinth or ancient Ephesus or ancient Philippi or any of those other places, right? So... I I genuinely don't think that if Paul was writing letters to us today, they would sound the same as they did to the churches back then because we're different people in a different time in a different place worshiping the same divine mystery. So the goal should not be can we crack the code and do it the same way they did it back then. The goal should be can we be invited into the same mystery that they were invited into. And what we get are Help from our spiritual ancestors, our spiritual parents, our spiritual siblings, who say this is what it looks like when we did it. This is what it looked like when we said yes to God's invitation. And when we are recipients of that, it helps us be more attentive to how God is inviting us in our particular time and space. So again, scripture is an invitation to us. It's not a guide, it's not a map, it's not a blueprint, it's not instructions, right? It's an invitation to know the divine mystery at the heart of creation, the one who created us, the one who knows us, the one who calls us to join in in the work of liberation and the work of bringing salvation to everyone that God created. That's what Scripture is. Uh, And I I know that is probably uh, unsatisfying to some of us who have been trained to want answers, but I'm telling you, when we can learn to trust, to humble ourselves, and be open to the divine mystery... Uh, that's, when, that's when really cool stuff starts to happen. That's when scripture often comes alive in new ways, in ways that it never did when we treated it like the instructions to a puzzle. Because God's not a puzzle to be solved. God is a mystery to be experienced. And, and again, God comes to us and makes God's self known to us so that we can have those experiences. So with that in mind, I want to invite us to the communion table. Another mystery, how these uh, styrofoam wafers and this grape juice or whatever we were able to, co- uh, to gather in our virtual uh, congregation, right? How these things can somehow become a spiritual food for us that invite us deeper into the mystery of God. How there's some way that we receive the grace that we need to be God's people in the world in sharing this meal together. There's, there's things about it that don't work as a puzzle. They only work when we understand them as a mystery. And so... Uh, I hope as we come to the table today, we can, uh, we can approach it in that way, as an invitation uh, not to a snack time or, or not even to just a ritual that we do every week, but into the very heart of who God is. Uh, as always, before we receive communion together, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of examine. I'm going to give you some space to discuss these questions or prayerfully consider them on your own, and then, uh, then once we've done that, I'll pray for us all together and we'll receive communion together. So first, uh, think back about the week that has led you here. Was there a time in the last week that Scripture helped me to know God better? Not know about God, but know God better. Now, when in the last week have I ignored, hid from, or avoided God? Now what in the next week, what might keep me from God? Finally, how can I make time for Scripture to lead me to God in this next week? Pray together. God, you have gathered us this morning uh, to invite us deeper into the divine mystery that you are. We're so grateful that we are only the latest generation in a long line of spiritual community that stretches back to the beginning of creation. That we have the benefit and the privilege of standing on the shoulders of so many of our spiritual parents and siblings who have come before us, who have known you uh, and who have left records in such a way that they invite us to know you as well. What an incredible privilege. And now we come to your communion table, the table that you set for us, the, sta- the table that you invite us to in the name of your son, Jesus. As We approach, we pray that these elements would be a spiritual food for us, that in receiving them together, we might too receive your grace and be folded deeper into the divine mystery of your great love for us and for our world. Send us from this place transformed yet again and ready to be your people and to show your love to a world that desperately needs to know you. We offer these prayers and we approach your table now in the name of your son, Jesus. The night Jesus was betrayed, this is the meal that he shared with his disciples. It was during that meal that he broke bread and he gave it to them. And he said, this is your body, or my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we remember Jesus's death until he returns. You know, it was, it was actually uh, quite a few years ago we realized here at Catalyst that we can talk about reading Scripture to be transformed instead of being informed all we want, but if we don't give, uh, give our folks some help, some tools to do that, uh, it, it can be difficult to know where to start because I, I think we... A lot of the reason we treat the Bible like a textbook is because that's sort of our context. We've had a lot of textbooks in our lives, right? And so uh, it's sort of the nearest thing we have to reach for with our brains when we approach Scripture. So in our spiritual practices guides, we have sort of a quick introduction to a a style of reading Scripture that's called a sacred reading. Uh, The Latin is the Lectio Divina, if if you've heard of that. Uh, And it is is a, a slow and intentional way to read Scripture that, uh, that has us go over the text multiple times and pay attention to different things in the text. Uh, and again, it's a way to intentionally break us out of that mold of reading for information and try to invite us into a place where we're entering into the Scriptures as a way to meet God in the text and to hear what the Spirit is saying to us through the Scriptures. And so uh, if you've never done a sacred reading before or if it's been a while or if you just like to kind of refresh yourself, uh, those of you who are virtual, uh, in the YouTube description, there should be a link to our spiritual practices guide. If you're here in the building, you can find those on the wall outside over there. And for those of you who have kids, we have a spiritual practices guide for kids uh, that you know talk, talks in that particular case about how to do sacred readings with your kids and teach them from a young age how to read for transformation, for an encounter with the divine mystery of God instead of reading for information. Uh, I I can say personally that when I learned to start reading Scripture for transformation, it was uh, was transformative for me. It really changed my faith a lot. I'm a nerd by nature, and so it's very easy for me and, and exciting for me to read for information. I love learning about that kind of stuff as evidenced by the fact that I geeked out when I met a Bible scholar that, you know, else had ever heard of, right? Um, so so I can say, I mean, even, even when we love learning about Scripture and learning about God through Scripture, uh, we can also still love to be changed by Scripture and to encounter God in the text. And so I want to challenge you this week to spend some time with the sacred reading uh, and and spend some time sort of trying to meet God in the text and not just treating Scripture as a a way to learn about God. And see what happens in your week. See how how that might change when you try this different approach to Scripture. Uh, Now, as we're leaving, I want to, of course, thank all of you who are continuing to give here at Catalyst. And those of you who are continuing to serve, we, we really are just grateful for the way you enable us to create these spaces for worship week after week and wrestle together and, and celebrate together and uh, grieve together and all of the things we do in our worship together. Uh, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of the leadership team too. Uh, if you'd stand now, I want to dismiss us with a blessing. Catalyst, as you go, would you go knowing that you were created by uh, a God who loves you and who uh, wants to know you and has made the first move towards you. Uh, May you go living your life in response, and may you find the scriptures a helpful companion as you lean on the wisdom of our spiritual ancestors who have gone before you, who have walked the same path, and who are inviting us to follow along. May we follow them well, and may we find the same kind of life and transformation that they have. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next week.